Hi everyone, welcome to Psychedelic Conversations. This is your hub for engaging in deep conversations around serotonergic hallucinogens that alter perceptions, affect cognitive processes, induce mystical and spiritual experiences. Enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Psychedelic Conversations podcast and today I have a very special guest as all of our guests are very special and today I have Dr. James Cook. Thank you so much for joining us, welcome. Thank you, it's great to be here. And just before we begin our deep conversation, I just want to um, introduce you guys to Dr. James Cook. Um, He is a neuroscientist, writer and speaker whose work focuses on consciousness with a particular interest in meditative and psychedelic states. He studied experimental psychology at Oxford University and is passionate about exploring um, the relationship between science and spirituality. And he is a perfect guest today for uh, going really deep into those concepts. So I can't wait to dive in. And could you please give us a little bit of a context about your background and um, how did you come into you know neuroscience and then psychedelics it's a beautiful combination in my own opinion uh, tell us about your background first please yeah so my background might be a bit different to um other people in this area because even though i'm trained kind of as a scientist i got interested in this stuff through a, a an experience of an altered state that happened to me when i was about 13 years old I had a kind of spontaneous mystical experience um, that I think was kind of stress-induced, kind of ruminating around kind of uh, stressful theological questions as I was at a Catholic school and I was an overly guilt-ridden, conscientious child and it all got a bit too much and my mind seemed to kind of grind to a halt. And as kind of Buddhists have attested to for a long time, when the, the rational mind stops chattering away and keeping you distracted, consciousness kind of shines forth in this like liberated way um where you feel like time collapses and you're just in this eternal free present moment um and so that happened to me then and and was the most important kind of moment of my life I think and since then I mean that when you have these mystical experiences they carry um this what the psychologist William James called um this kind of gnostic uh, this um noetic quality that you uh you kind of feel like you something true some deep truth has been revealed to you um i mean not necessarily revealed to you by an intelligence or anything but it, it the, the um the delusions have fallen away and you've seen reality clearly and this is what it felt like to me and so instead of um you know I, growing up uh, in this day and age I, I feel like our, our culture kind of reveres science, you know, the, whereas growing up, there wasn't much interest in kind of meditation and those paths, although I did consider it. But I, you know, I also thought, well, yeah, science seems to be, given that I think this is a deep truth that I've recognized, 
um, science seems like a reasonable way to approach it. You know, I think this is something true about reality. It's not something supernatural. It's it's uh, just an insight, a different perspective on reality. So I studied psychology and then neuroscience, um, very interested in perception and consciousness. Um, uh, yeah, alongside that, my own meditation practice. And then I started kind of talking about this stuff in public um, because, you know, this 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 lifelong drive to kind of communicate to people that you can engage with spirituality uh, in a way that is in no way contradictory to being a kind of rational, scientifically minded person, you know. Um, I don't know if it's just growing up in England, but I think in a lot of Western countries, there's this feeling in the mainstream that anything spiritual is just kind of woo-woo, you're, you're believing in nonsense just to make yourself feel good. And I felt very strongly this wasn't the case. Um, and so when I started talking about this stuff in public, I, I'd always been interested in psychedelics um, because they're kind of related to these, these states. Um, and there was lots of momentum picking up during my academic training in the background with the psychedelic renaissance. Uh, and then it was when I started talking about stuff in public, I realized that a lot of the people who were having, who were talking about the same topics were people who were in the psychedelic space. Um, because, you know, as we know now, psychedelics kind of produce these mystical experiences um, or at least states that are very similar. And so I, I kind of developed an interest in them uh, for that reason, also as a sense to kind of like democratize these states, because I think they're very important and that they can really be the centerpiece of a very, for me, I feel it's a very positive worldview that can really lead to, to kind of felt sense of emotional and psychological freedom um, and leading to, to acting better in the world. And so psychedelics I saw as a way to kind of democratize, you know, access to these states. Um, and then... I, I tried them myself to kind of see if it really did, if it really was comparable to my spontaneous mystical experience. And I found that um, with high dose psilocybin, there really were similarities. And then as psychedelics are kind of want to do without me expecting it, they started to kind of do their healing magic and just started to unravel all these unconscious emotional issues that I've been carrying my whole life. Like a lot of, well, like all of us, um, we have this shadow material that we don't even know is there that we're kind of intentionally or unconsciously turning away from. Um, and it was just kind of bringing up these things and, and allowing them to resolve. And I just found that it, it utterly transformed me for the better, my physical health, my mental health. Um, and so that wasn't, that was an added bonus for me, I guess, um, outside the kind of intellectual interest. Uh, yeah. So then psychedelics have become more and more central to what I talk about. Um, I initially thought I would just be talking about them as a side thing. It's like, oh yeah. And here's a route into the stuff I'm talking about, but there's so much going on now. There's so much interesting stuff happening. Um, there's kind of a lot more to say about psychedelics than, you know, if you just stick to kind of the mystical traditions and you just tell everyone that these states are beyond words and they should just sit in silence. There's only so much you can say about that. So I find myself talking more and more about psychedelics. Mm, and I want to thank you for doing that. <clears throat> That's how I met you. And um, I was I was actually Googling, um, well, YouTube Googling, <laughs> searching for um, spiritual bypassing, with psychedelics um, and then you come up so I didn't know how YouTube algorithm picked your video but I was blown away with your um, very brutal honest uh, opinion and your own experiences and the fact that you're a neuroscientist and that the fact that you are an academic um, I realized that um, things that you say would probably be more strongly um, taken seriously because as you know we have these um, psychedelic communities. Somehow um, there is a Woodstock, Woodstock vibe to these communities where they 
kind of not taken seriously and and because of the way they um, handle or contain these experiences and process and, and kind of integrate it into their lives, it's almost like there's a division. And what I'm observing in the last, especially five years, that I have seen a lot of neuroscientists, researchers, uh, professors, doctors. I mean, one of my favorites is Dr. Faderman, uh, James Faderman, who's leading the whole movement uh, of psychedelic research. And Stamets, you know, Paul Stamets, all of these um, big names in the um, psychedelic realm. But I'm loving the fact that uh, we have Dr. Robin Carhart Harris. We have now you in the UK also leading this space, which kind of warms my heart because I think we need as much education and information coming from a very grounded, even dare I say, scientific, so that we can collectively somehow work through our issues of this stigma and somehow I know this is a bit kind of um, too outreach but also hoping that we can close the gap of this psychedelic communities there, there there's they are and then us and you know this whole division in the psychedelic space is crazy and that's why I would like to say thank you for um, having your YouTube channel which I will add all the links I'd love our listeners to connect with you and follow you because I think you are going to lead this space in leading us all together into truth of what psychedelics are and what they can do for us. So thank you. And um, my next question would be, you were only 13. So you were only 13 when, I, when you had this crazy experience. How did you contain it? Did you have anyone to talk about it? Who, what, what, your family, your members, your friends, what can you just, kind of go back and tell us what it was like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you don't mind before that, I'd love to respond to what you said before you said some really interesting things about the role of scientists in, in this space. Um, and I think it's it's important to kind of, well, when we think about psychedelics and how powerful they are, I think there are two trajectories we can take. We can either, the, the, the one that I would advocate for is to look at the fact that um, part of the reason we, we we look to scientists and people like me to kind of, you know, give the rubber stamp on this and say, this is all good and, you know, go ahead with it. Um, it's because of a, of a, a kind of a cultural tradition where demonizing psychedelics, demonizing plant-based shamanism, de demonizing kind of indigenous ways of life has been the trajectory for the last, you know, many centuries. And it's, it's, it's actually like, it's not a, um, it wasn't a mistake, you know, that, that psychedelics were made illegal. It wasn't a mistake that, um, you know, uh, mescaline containing cacti in the Americas were so heavily suppressed. And so there's this very like um, systemic problem where uh, that psychedelics can really, they can be a thread that can help you to really understand what's happened over the last centuries, really, if not millennia, uh, in terms of what's gone wrong globally. Um, and so we can either, we can reckon with that and we can try to platform, you know, Indigenous practitioners as well as scientists and have a whole, you know, bunch of different um, perspectives. Uh, but the thing that's that's worrying to me is that we won't do that. What we'll do is we'll say, great, the the scientists like me have said it's okay. We'll put it in their hands. We still we don't have to talk about the indigenous use. We don't have to talk about um, any kind of respect for those traditions. We can just put it in a pill and it can get rolled out through the mass pharmaceutical system. And we just don't have to. Nothing has to change really. 
Um, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that because I share the excitement that, you know, I think it's useful for people like me to be talking about it. But I also think um, if we're not critical of like, we, we shouldn't only have people like me talking about it. And there is a genuine risk of that, I think, um, if we don't keep fighting to, to broaden the conversation. Um, but yeah, so then on um, the kind of mystical experience when I was a teenager, I mean, so you're saying about how did I contain it and what was it? Um, yeah, did I have anyone to talk to about it? So interestingly, the emotional distress that led up to it, it was a resolving moment. It was actually an incredibly positive, liberating moment that in its effects was, was purely positive. So um, I remember thinking at the time uh, or like, you know, in the period after it, thinking like, is there any chance that I've, you know, had some mental break, that this is some patho like some pathology, some psychosis? And I was like, well, this is the best I've ever felt in my life and not in like a manic way, in a very kind of calm, free way. And like, like I'd resolved, like I was free of, I was, I was going to say resolve, but I hadn't, what the psychedelic showed me is <laughs> these things don't get, the emotional stuff doesn't get resolved. You can transcend it. But so I'm actually, you know, <laughs> you were talking about spiritual bypassing. I see, I see a lot of danger of spiritual bypassing when it comes to doing, doing spiritual practices without doing emotional work. And for me, psychedelics are an incredibly powerful tool to do a kind of psychotherapeutic emotional work. And I would say for most of my life, uh, I was wandering around accessing these, what felt like very profound mental states that were kind of, that would transcend suffering. But it was only when I started doing psychedelics, I realized that that was, it was slightly dissociative instead of being very kind of grounded and embodied. Um, but at the time it was, yeah, it felt very, um, very positive, very liberating. And I would just kind of, um, you know, I'd, I'd be wandering around and just, just seeing a kind of blade of grass or like a, a flower, I would just become kind of, I would kind of collapse into, into the present moment in this way where it felt like I was seeing the eternal in, in every single thing, you know, just like, every all that can ever exist is just this 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 is what's happening right now no matter how good everything gets no matter how bad everything gets it's always just this and even if there's no life left even if there's no consciousness it's still just this and i am this kind of ex eternal you know existence so it felt very um very positive uh, and it never left me I, I still kind of you know um drop into these states and i kind of meditate and when i'm mindful uh and but the, but you're right that um the, it was, I guess, in a sense, alienating because I didn't really talk to anyone about it. I can't, I don't even think I spoke to my closest friends about it directly. We were kind of interested in, um, I guess, in kind of philosophy and, and related ideas. So we we would read, I mean, my closest friends, we would read books, you know, say by like the romantic poets who would uh, kind of be conjuring up a similar vibe. And so I would, I felt like we were all got it. In, in, to some extent, um, but then it was really when I went off to university. I I really kind of kept a lid on it. I shared it with maybe two or three people, um, and they didn't really know what to say. It was just kind of like, oh, that's weird. Like, do you think it's a problem? And I'm like, no. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and so that's I think that's partly why I, I also um, felt this desire to talk publicly about this because it wasn't like I had. Um, yeah, I hadn't gone down the spiritual practice route and I didn't have like a kind of a sangha, like a spiritual community to talk about these ideas with. Um, I was very much around uh, other scientists um, who were not interested in these ideas. 
Uh, and then, yeah, then talking about this in public has been wonderful because you very quickly meet other people like yourself, other people interested in these things. And um, yeah, I'm very grateful that I have that opportunity now. Yeah, and the reason I asked you about the, your surrounding, your environment, when you had the experience at the age of 13 is many years ago, <clears throat> we had a very similar incident in our own uh, intimate family, you know, um, one of our family members. Um, very young at the, at the time, very young, uh, young male, gone through a very similar experience that you had, um, completely collapsed into the present moment, induced by this psychosis. And um, back then, none of us really were able to help him. And suddenly he was alienated. Suddenly he became the mental ill person. Overnight, he became this um, <clears throat> rejected family member who's gone through this psychosis. In fact, it was a divine moment for him. It was uh, the most beautiful experience. And even now, many years later, now he's overcame the you know whole um, stigmatization and uh, the environmental challenges that it caused. But uh, every time he speaks about it, it's just like the beautiful moment of oneness, the knowingness, the, the uh, Gnostic inner wisdom that's just coming alive and uh, he will never change it for anything. And due to the nature of my work with holistic psychotherapy, I see many people and I meet, speak to people who also talk about their experiences induced with psychosis or some kind of uh, altered states. And they say the same thing. They say it's the beautiful moment and, and they can always tap into it. I mean, I have not had any of those experiences, but I know what they mean because of my own psychedelic experiences where I can literally tap into those moments in meditative states in mindfulness, in, in you know, day-to-day -day mundane activities where I can bring myself and ground myself. So I, I totally get that. And unfortunately, um, the, the whole society is not ready for containing these kind of um, experiences that comes through their loved ones, friends. And somehow there is this, um, you know, um, <clears throat> one thing that I wanted to take your thoughts on is that... Um, there is this saying that everybody's asleep and you kind of squeeze something in with uh, this, this feeling that you had, the connectedness and, and this collapsing into the present moment. You, you know, people capture these moments in their poems, in their songwriting, in their, you know, it's crazy how we all are capable of capturing these moments, but they don't stay with us. But somehow when you do go through those psychoses or those kind of altered states and induced states, you do. You become this person who can now embody what you have been given, shown, and experienced. So this is fascinating. So my idea that um, people are not asleep, I think there is something more deeper going on, which I'll have to come to that, that in a moment. But let's take your thoughts on people, all people are asleep because there are, there is this, you know, spiritual bypassing. One of the spiritual bypassing that I observed that people who do intensive spiritual work, I can't believe they sometimes go around thinking people are asleep. What are your thoughts? Um, I mean, I, I think I used the word delusion before and I, I do, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I take the analogy and I, I think it's a useful analogy and it's, you know, you do run the risk of sounding incredibly patronizing if you're saying everyone in the world's asleep and I'm awake or I've had a glimpse of what it's like to be awake. But, um, but I mean, I think um, 
in Western psychology, maybe we need a term for this that's not as alienating to people as kind of an enlightenment experience. Um, because, you know, with psychosis, it's, it's very emotionally distressing, right? There's a, it's, it's intensely negative. Um, whereas this was entirely positive and, you know, didn't require any containment. I don't think anyone from the outside would have noticed any change in me at all, apart from maybe I smiled more. Um, and I was just more at ease in myself. Uh, I would, I would love to have seen what I looked like from the outside because I remember going, I probably went from a moment of intense kind of furrowed brow to sudden relaxation. But apart from that in the moment, um, yeah, there was no, no kind of negative stuff that needed containing, um, because it does feel like in the same way, when you wake up out of a dream, you feel very, very, you know, if you wake up out of a nightmare, right, where you're suffering and you're like, oh, thank God it's a nightmare. In that moment, you're more relaxed. You're more grounded. You're more, you feel like, okay, that I was deluded there. I was taken in by something that wasn't as real as I thought it was. Um, and I do think that's, it's not that, you know, everyone's asleep and you can be permanently awake. What I think it is, is that the structure of our minds is we didn't evolve to be enlightened. We evolved to basically be the complete opposite. All of our kind of old machinery keeps us, you know, hungry, craving food and looking for, you know, all of the next hit of like whatever it is that you need to survive. And that's the, that's the comparatively asleep state where, you know, when you're in that state, um, and this is a state most of us live our lives in is, is you're just, you think you take your thoughts to be real. You know, you, you look at a weed in your garden and you think, oh, that's such an ugly weed. I hate it. I want to get rid of it. But you've never had the insight that you are the one who's created the category of weed. If that was in the mountains, it would not be a weed. There's nothing in, in it intrinsically that makes it a weed. It's your way of looking at it. And your way of looking at it is causing you to suffer. Um, if you just look at it and look at its flowers, you'll realize it's beautiful um, and then you don't have to suffer. So that's the kind of, <clears throat> that's the kind of transition people can have uh, where they, they don't take their thoughts and their perceptions to be as real as they previously did. And that's, that's why it's kind of liberating because you're no, you know, it's the, it's when we invest in things being a certain way too much and we're engaged in this attachment of wanting to be a different way, that's when we suffer. So there is a kind of waking up analogy, I think, to realizing that these things aren't as substantial as, um, as they might be. But I'm also someone, I don't advocate that we all go around seeking enlightenment. I don't see very many examples of people or any examples of people who are kind of permanently enlightened. Um, but what I, I mentioned earlier that I think the mystical insight can be the perfect centerpiece to understanding our situation. And it's, I mean, it's the only centerpiece. I think it's the true center um, in that it's, it's just this, like, it's so simple in that it's just being, it's really just being grounded in, in the present and not <clears throat> being distracted in all of this doing that is the kind of, you know, we evolved to be these kind of doing creatures. So I think we can all have these insights. We could all get a feeling of what it's like to wake up and then know not to take our usual dreaming life so seriously um, and use it, use it. So I think, so we know where ground is. Cause I think, I think a lot of people, um, the way our minds work, it's like we're kind of juggling balls and we take this to be normal. We have, so someone with psych, who's on the brink of psychosis, their daily life is not, they're not going to feel grounded. They're not going to feel like by definition, they're not going to feel um, completely at peace. And like, if you put them in a meditation hall for 10 hours, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, this is fine. They're not going to do that. 
Um, and the average person won't do that either. If you say you're going to go into solitary confinement for 10 hours by yourself, you know, we consider that one of the worst tortures you can inflict on someone. And it's because our minds are in this constant state of kind of juggling these, these balls uh, of thoughts and keeping our actions going and the background stress that goes with that. And so this is what I think this understanding of the kind of existential stress that's built into us, if we don't find ground, if we don't find a way to access the kind of infinite present moment, if we don't anchor ourselves there, then we're kind of at the whims of reality to just toss us around and you know, push us over the edge of stress into psychosis and depression, anxiety, OCD, all these things. Um, and so I do see the, the answer for severe mental distress uh, as well as mundane, everyday unhappiness. I do see it as understanding how you relate to this, this core aspect of what you are, which is just kind of eternal being, I guess you could say. Yes, I love that. Thanks for that description. Um, you said on one of your talks, you said um, enlightenment is accepting and being okay with not knowing, being okay with not figuring it all out and being okay with the mundanity, being okay with um, accepting the physical limited beings that we are. Can you speak to on that, please? Because the enlightenment is a very big topic here and somehow we want to be far away in the future this light being levitation and you know the, all, the whole image that goes with the enlightenment can you talk to us more about that yeah I mean so the the not knowing part is important because it's I think I think you're referring to I was talking about that in the context of uh trying to get a kind of intellectual understanding of all this stuff so you know we're we're not good at just sitting around being silent and being enlightened, right? So it is not, doesn't come easy to us. And so we have these conversations and we talk around the subject and we point to these states that, that are, in, are beyond words because words are kind of built on concepts and that's all the kind of the way our mind works that divides up reality and keeps us suffering. Whereas in this state of unity, you let the concepts and the words fall away and you just kind of intuitively get it. Um, and so it's in, it is beyond words. And so when you're, you know, I said before that what you are is kind of eternal being, um, those are words that are pointing towards this realization that is beyond words. So, you know, if you have someone who says uh, you are consciousness and reality is consciousness, or you are your brain and reality is made of matter, all of these assertions are ideas, but they're, they're not the truth. None of the, the real truth of feeling what it is to exist is utterly beyond words. And to, to really reckon with that, you need to be comfortable letting go of words, letting go of your intellectual attachment to these things. Um, I think this is a big issue. I think we see a lot of people in this space who, without realizing it, are funneling their emotional kind of background stress levels into this intellectual pursuit of like, if I read enough books, if I, if I can say the right sequence of words to myself, um, then I'll be happy, like then I'll be free. And I've had, I've had this, this experience many times. Um, I find this is something in particular that psychedelics are useful for, is that <clears throat> if you're under the influence of psychedelics, sorry, <clears throat> if you're under the influence of psychedelics and you, um, you find your kind of, your mind is racing, you know, this is very common, especially with something like LSD, you might, your mind might be chattering away, you might be having loads of ideas, making new connections. Um, what I always find is there's a certain point where 
I notice my mind's been going, going, going for quite a while and I'm not feeling grounded and, and in the present moment. And to me, that's an alarm that, okay, like this, what's what I think I'm just thinking about something interesting. I think I'm thinking about something important, but what's really happening is because I'm this evolved creature that doesn't know how to, to just be perfectly happy every moment, which is what it would be to be enlightened, that there's this subtle fueling of my thought process with an emotional investment. It could be, um, say I'm thinking about a problem to do with consciousness. There could be, you know, at first I'd be like, well, it's fascinating. It's interesting. People will find it valuable if I have something interesting to say on it. But then you can notice if you're doing that from a pace of being perfectly grounded and then choosing to think about it, or if there's this energy that could be, um, very subtle feelings of like, okay, like I've got to figure this out because if my colleagues ask me a difficult question, and I don't know the answer, then I'll look silly or, you know, and this, you're not thinking this consciously, but if you really drill down, there can be those layers to your mind. And often that fear of, of looking silly can be rooted in very early childhood stuff of just like, most of us carry this kind of this existential, this like existential issue that comes up when we're very small of like, am I good enough? You know? And I think a lot of us, <clears throat> our thought processes can be charged with that, with that energy. Um, and so when it comes to, you know, this is all to say that you need to learn when to identify when the mind, the kind of rational mind that speaks in words, when it's getting out of control or when it's, when it's taking over the show. And in those moments, you just need to turn to the present moment and try to be wordlessly okay with whatever exists. And so this takes us to what we might call a kind of enlightenment stance of just being completely non-attached, just allowing whatever arises utterly beyond words, um, even allowing the mind to, to chatter away, but you're observing it and you're just kind of being with it. So that's the um, why I think it's, it's kind of inherently beyond words. And you mentioned this kind of idea of it being some far off attainable transcendent goal. Um, yeah, I think that's another uh, pitfall of this stuff. You know, I'm when I had my experience as a teenager, it felt like I was recognizing something that's always true. It's always here. And when you recognize it, it's astounding to you that you don't recognize it in every moment. It's the most profound, obvious um, aspect of existence. I mean, it's so obvious that you can't really put it into words. It's just the kind of the fact that everything exists and it's all just this one thing and that you are it, you know, and it sounds very simple to say, but when you kind of really get it, it's, it's very powerful. And so you recognizing that is what I'm calling enlightenment. And you either recognize it or you don't, I mean, you can kind of glimpse it in degrees as well, but it's always here. It's not something to be cultivated. It's not something to be, um, to, to kind of grow in yourself, to add to yourself. It's just a perspective shift. So that's why I, I don't see enlightenment as this far off thing. Um, and I'm very, <laughs> there are, in, in kind of Mahayana Buddhism, there's a lot of, there's this emphasis on what they call Buddha nature, that everything has Buddha nature, like everything's already enlightened, it just doesn't realize it. And to me, that's that's the right way of thinking about it. It's a perspective shift we can all do, um, not something you need to chase after. I love that. It's the, the big switch. Um, I had a conversation from Jamie Real, I think he talked about finding God in the mundane, um, but the mundane is already sacred. <clears throat> mundane is already, <clears throat> like you said, 
it's already um, here. And this brings me to this understanding of the consciousness, levels of consciousness exist in every moment. And uh, you and I, you could be on a different dimension of consciousness. I can be on a different one. And we're talking to each other and we're trying to relate. I feel like our relationships are a bit like that. So imagine, um, you know, some people who are very much into the self-work, uh, they have gone far advanced in their own evolution and awareness, but they live in a household, a family or relational um, other beings where they're on a different path journey. Um, and there is this, there's always talks about not relating to their own family and seeking their tribe outside always finding other people. I mean, Jason Silver talks about this, like finding the others. And there are so many uh, scriptures and lectures on this, um, especially in the self-development space. People always talk about find your tribe because your family isn't your tribe, even though you're born into your family. I find this fascinating, but could it be that by that little switch, we can accept the things as they are, coming back to the sacred in the mundane. So. That means my family, who don't get me, they are sacred. And one of my biggest realizations only came through, this was like a recent breakthrough, actually, interestingly, that um, everything, everything and everyone outside of me is kind of organized in a very intelligent way for my own awakening, for my own awareness. So there is nothing I need to change. There's nothing I need to um, I don't need to abandon my family. I don't need to abandon anybody. It's about the switch. It's about accepting that this is all about. Also brings me to the um, Krishnamurti. You know, they apparently they asked him. So you know, it's okay for you to deal with uh, other people because you're an enlightened being. You're this guru. What about us ordinary people who are dealing continually with these? difficult people in our lives and his answer was like what other people you know it, it's a bit like that it's, it's almost like the chaos inside is always a reflection it's so it's it, it's it's almost like um how we interpret our ex external environment or reality or perception is almost the the direct uh, projection of the internal right so can you speak to us on on those things threads that i've just said um, yeah, absolutely. So I think the um, there's this this way of thinking about what's going on that um, comes up many times in spiritual traditions, and it can also be described scientifically. I find one of the easiest things to point people towards is the doctrine of two truths in Mahayana Buddhism again, um, where basically the idea is that uh, we live on this relative level where you know I as I relate to the weed. I think the weed is bad because I don't want it in my garden. So that's a kind of, you know, it's, the weed isn't absolutely bad in some intrinsic sense, but I relate to it that way. So on this relative level, um, that's my, my kind of consciousness towards it. But on the absolute level, it just is, and you can transcend all of that. So one, someone like Krishnamurti, um, who's wonderful, you know, but is generally pointing people in the direction of the absolute, you know, because we tend to live on the relative level. He's trying to kind of say, like, move beyond that what do you mean, you know, as I love that quote about, you know, there are no others, it's just the one playing out, it's, you know, doing its unfolding, and we're like two hands on the same, same being. Um, but so even though there is that, 
the the absolute can feel more fundamental and it kind of is more fundamental in a sense the relative level is still true but only in, it's true in relative terms so i still maybe don't want that weed in my garden and i can still hold that attitude towards it i just don't have to believe deep down it i don't have to make the mistake of thinking it has essence of badness in it i don't have to, i can realize i'm making a relative judgment rather than an absolute judgment so so this kind of brings us back to spiritual bypassing if you just think about meditation and enlightenment you're liable to try and engage in in bypassing well i don't want to generalize but i think a pitfall is you can bypass a lot of issues that should be worked on and this is why i think it's equally important you know i think the enlightenment piece is the centerpiece for your worldview or you know if i would advocate it can be but then the meat of what you have to do is the self-work is the um the emotional health stuff which is all on the relative level so Imagine if, you know, someone um, is in a situation where there's like domestic violence and you say to them, oh, you should take up meditation. You can just, you can learn to be really mindful and you can transcend the suffering. You know, you'll feel the pain, but it won't feel like pain anymore. It would just feel like a strong sensation. You could say that and that might help them to cope. But if that was the end of your analysis, you wouldn't be being a very good friend or a helpful person to this person, you know. On the relative level, they should still take steps to remove themselves from that situation. Um, there's, there's a, I can't remember where it is. There's, a, there's another Buddhist teaching where the first, the first kind of instruction is stay where you are, which is like, you know, you may not like the challenges you're faced with, but don't fall into the trap of kind of thinking you should actually go around engaging with the world on the relative level. I personally wouldn't, that's not the stance I take. I, I think we should equally, um, yeah, be taking steps to improve the harmonious interactions of of the world um, interpersonally and at larger social scales. Uh, it's not folly to do that. It's not that the world is an illusion that we can just see through and have a shortcut to enlightenment. It's that you can have this absolute perspective that can really be freeing, can really help you be more grounded and act better in the world. But it, that doesn't stop it being wise and useful to engage on the relative level um so yeah the enlightenment piece alone really does have that danger of spiritual bypassing yeah amazing but i did i, I do like the way that you um, point out if there is a very serious environmental um, threat or something that is not um something that's quite you know challenging then of course remove but um in general terms i was thinking of you know um, the general terms of speaking about our family members who are just annoying just because they are different, that kind right. of thing. Um, but um, again, um, I just wanted to come back to the another topic that you talked about, uh, keep bringing it back to this trauma. So you talk about um, pathological mind, pathological society, um, and also the escapism i want to bring our attention to the love and light culture that because you it's nice to tie it together you said if you are delving into the spiritual realm with meditation it's very easy to kind of slip and bypass of course because there is this um, growing culture of love and light um, that you are made of love that we're all love and that um, of course is true but um, how do you speak to that how do you how do you deal with those kind of concepts? People are continually yeah. circulating the love and light concepts. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, this isn't a community that I've kind of 
been involved with, but I guess so I can talk to the kind of idea of, of love and light more than having, having a nuanced kind of critique of, of the community. But I, I think especially tying it into the family dynamic stuff. So you're talking about people who might grow up in a family where there's some kind of, they don't feel like they're their, their group of people and that they should go out and find their, their kind of new family. Uh, yeah. And seek out the others, seek out their people. Um, I think there's, so when people are doing this kind of inner work, when you're doing self-work, fundamentally what you're doing is you are deciding to try to minimize the extent to which you will, you will externalize your issues. So if I'm not doing inner work <clears throat> and I have an anger problem because I have self-loathing and I'm, but instead of going to therapy and working on my self-loathing, I just say it's other people's problem. I get angry at people over small things and I'm, I'm constantly attributing the, the, um, the suffering or the disturbance to other people. And I'm, I'm willing to cause them harm to save myself. To, and I'm choosing to not take on the burden of doing my own inner work. This is the, the, the most important axis, I would say here, where you have people who want to do that. And in doing so, they become, they become more empathetic and more compassionate because they're, they're saying, I would rather not hurt other people. I would rather take responsibility, do the hard work myself. So there's a spectrum through from people who are doing good kind of self-work and, and trying to take on that burden for themselves through to personality disorders like narcissism, through to sociopathy and psychopathy, which are all kind of individual-based illnesses where you're investing in your ego and you're you're saying basically, you know, with the psychopath, you've got someone who would rather burn down the entire world than than have themselves be threatened. And the same with, with you know, a narcissist to a lesser degree. Um, so when you're, I think, you know, you were saying about being in a family unit and should you, should you stay and try to work with that or should you find the others? It matters where your family members are on the spectrum. And we, especially I think in England, we, we have this very repressive, emotionally, um, yeah, repressive culture. And especially, you know, generations after the war, you have this dynamic where you have traumatized people who are raising kids and you get this culture where instead of them having to take responsibility <clears throat> for passing on emotional harms, there's this, there's this consensus, almost like a kind of a cultural norm around narcissism emerges where they say, you have to love, you have to um, respect your parents and, and communicate with them and forgive them for everything, uh, no matter what. And so that's just, that's a kind of um, a gaslighting technique that's just put in place as this arbitrary message. You know, if a child is born into a family that's incredibly abusive, like anyone clear-headed would say, okay, they should, they should be removed from there. They have no obligation. That child has no obligation to, to engage with those, those parents. So, <clears throat> there's a spectrum where it's up to the individual really to, to figure out how, um, how kind of, you know, we're exposed to these kind of emotional dynamics and how much of a drain, how much of a, how much of a uh, negative effect it's having on their progress and they're and not, in a, not, not in a selfish way, but in, you know, when you're doing this in a work, you're trying to do it gem generally to try and be a better person in the world and help others. So I would actually advocate for, um, reducing the taboo around kind of estrangement from parents, estrangement from toxic family members, because it's just, it's just an unfortunate fact that people can be born into deeply toxic environments where 
Um, it should the shame shouldn't be on the person who just wants to remove themselves in order to be healthy, um, with no animosity towards the often towards the um, the toxic people. Um, yeah. So so I think and I think love and light to me when I hear those words that evokes to me the 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 side of the spectrum that's to do with um, this compassionate taking on your own issues so you can be more compassionate, be more empathetically bound to other people. And the light part, you know, all of these disorders like narcissism, they have this kind of like Machiavellian um, trait where it's like, there's a lot going on in the shadows. There's a reason we talk about light and dark. There's a lot of manipulation. The image is one thing, but what's really happening is another thing. So it makes sense to talk about that as darkness. It's all shrouded in, in darkness, whereas in the light, we're just being truthful and honest and owning our feelings. And so I see those as I'm, I'm, when you say there's a kind of growing movement around it, I'm excited that people are talking about that more. But then at the same time, the final thing I would say on this is that when you go to kind of seek out your people, um, how do I say this without being too harsh on people? Um, I feel like there's no community where people's, where the human mind doesn't get in the way and come up with some kind of nonsense. So, so with, I can imagine with the love and light community that there's probably lots of toxic positivity there. There's probably people who gaslight other people who don't want to hear about their traumas because they just want to kind of spiritually bypass into the positivity. I can tell I think I've heard similar things to that said about that community. Um, so the print, I think this is something that can be a real challenge for people when they're trying to find the others is you really want, you really want to be able to go out there in the world, find the like-minded people and just, there we go. I've got my new family and it's great, but unfortunately humans are complicated and there is no, in my experience, there is no perfect community that's without its flaws. Um, and so the kind of the job of being a human is it's, it's kind of constant, um, interpersonal work. That's kind of what it is to be a human, you know, like for most of human history, we lived in these bands of like around a hundred people and, it's not like today where it's like, okay, you can get your food delivered and you can, you don't really have to engage with other people. You can turn up to your job and, or maybe you work from home. And, but instead it was like, well, no, day in, day out, you're working with others, you're negotiating difficulties, you're, and this doesn't have to you know, describe it this way. It might feel like a lot of work, but it's what we're made to do. We enjoy hanging out with friends and hanging out with people if we're engaging in a healthy way. Um, so I think this, this is what I, you know, I would like to see as a revival in those um, principles of community and us being willing to accept us, accept each other with all of our flaws, as long as we're moving in the right direction of emotional health and taking on our own uh, emotional baggage instead of externalizing it into the world. Yeah, I love that. So much wisdom here. And uh, one of my uh, principles in doing self-work is to be brutally honest with ourselves, uh, which can be very difficult when we walk around with blind spots and deception, you know, the and, and I, I guess this is where you tie that human beings were so complex. We are, because we have these blind spots where we can easily um, start projecting and start thinking that the other people are my problem. And because and, um, sometimes, you know, in those family dynamics, you could be that person. You could be the person that is causing the pain to everybody. I think what I see in the self-development space is a lot of people kind of self-claim this heroic I've done it, you know, I, I removed myself from my toxic family. I found psychedelics, I found psychedelic communities. I, I found, I mean, not just psychedelic, but um, there's so many communities out there in self-development space. And, uh, and yet 
all of these are also coming from that place of, um, well, have you ever thought you might be that horrible person? You might be the difficult person that people uh, cannot be around with you, right? Um, one of my um, strongest, the most powerful psychedelic experiences was, was exactly that, that I was a difficult person. I still am integrating this because I'm, you also talk about in one of your conversations, you said about coming from that pathological trauma, traumatized you know, environment, sometimes children develop. Of course, this is not their fault because we see um, in the psychology space, we see a lot of these labels and a lot of these concepts because we need them, right? Uh, we need these labels to understand um, how these play out in, in the grown-up adult life. And uh, uh, this is the first time I'm going to say this, but I, I had uh, severe borderline traits. And um, so, um, and you know, and it, again, one of your talks, you talked about, uh, you talked about this concept of um, if a child is traumatized heavily growing up, they could uh, be so cut off from their somatic, you know, disconnected from their body, their body intelligence, because I'm, that's my, one of my core values is to drop into our bodies and kind of tap into that body intelligence. <clears throat> and yet in a trauma uh, process it unfortunately the child can go into this highly intellectual abstract and become this um, intelligent being who kind of lives a whole life around intellectualizing everything so I think this is quite tragic um, can you please speak to us on that as well yeah I mean that's a perfect description of, of my response to my own kind of early life trauma is is complete abandonment of the body I mean, I say complete, you know, as thoroughly as you can and yet still function. Um, and I was reflecting on this this morning, actually, um, where something that used to happen to me a lot was I would just feel very tired and I would, I would say, oh, I feel very tired. And it took me most of my adult life to realize that that was actually a kind of emotional shutdown response of if I found something overwhelming, it could be something trivial, but it could have an association that triggers this this very old part of me from presumably when I was very small that just is like okay too much and you're just almost like you know wanting to just go limp and and uh and give up and so for most of my life I was misattributing feelings in my body you know and and coming up with easy explanations like oh it's just physical tiredness physical issues are not threatening to us because they don't involve us having to do any emotional work you know so I would have muscle tension in my shoulders, which I now understand is called armoring. It's a kind of response to complex trauma where you're kind of hypervigilant, you're on edge. But I thought it was just, I thought that's just how my muscles are. Massage therapist after massage therapist told me, yep, you just have tight muscles. You know, the culture really hasn't understood this emotional, you know, how emotions play out in the body. Um, same thing, I had eczema, which I now know was stress-related. Again, doctor after doctor telling me I was just a spontaneous skin condition. Um, all of these things, it's, it's, you know, as a scientist who, who, you know, it, it's astounding to me that the mainstream, mainstream medicine still hasn't got its head around this because we're, I mean, the culture, this is why you mentioned the start, this idea that the whole culture is traumatized. The whole culture is stuck in this mode of like rushing into the future and come on, we're going to build spaceships and go to space and oh, you can watch this on TV and just don't, you know, do everything apart from stop, be in your body, feel your feelings confront whatever the shadow material is. No, none of that, no way. And, you know, just rush off into the future. Um, yeah, and, so, and I think- And take, it, take, take an ibuprofen, take a paracetamol if you've got- Right, right, exactly. Take and and yeah. if you're, 
if you're someone who's come from a, say you, you faced early life trauma and then you were, um, say you face systemic inequalities and all this stuff, and then you feel depressed, it's not because you're emotionally exhausted and you're overwhelmed and that you have a valid story to tell. It's because you have a spontaneous brain imbalance in a chemical. Don't worry, it's another physical issue. You know, it has, has no meaning behind it. We're, we're obsessed with this way of thinking and it's a self-protection mechanism. It's like a, it's like a delusional kind of psychotic way of thinking as a culture, as, as, as a whole. Um, because, you know, once, once you're trained in kind of biology, psychology, neuroscience, you look at it and you go, oh, of course, when the stress system is high, you get this kind of skin inflammation. We treat it with stress hormones. It all makes sense in terms of emotional health, but no one in the mainstream talks about it that way. So this is, this is partly why um, a lot of my thinking always returns to social issues and how can we improve society? Because um, no matter how much I might want to try and convince myself that things are okay, I'm always, this is one of the core things that brings me back. I go, we are not in a we are not in a sane culture. We are not grounded. No matter how much people might want to point to po the positives of the current world, it's not. It's in a deeply pathological state, and it's never. You know, the mental health epidemic that we're facing now is not a coincidence. It's part of that. Um, it's part of a an unconscious way of being that's that's deeply pathological. And this is also why I'm. You know advocate for psychedelics because I think you know people often feel like psychedelics can can save the world and that's often kind of it's becoming very popular now in kind of mainstream um you know news outlets to mock that idea but I think it's really I get the insight and you know whether people when people have that that well if the problem is that people are not facing their shadows and they're stuck in this mode of like I don't care if we rip all of the resources out of the earth and and the rest of future human generations die. It's that narcissism again. It's that suspending compassion for future generations because they're so stuck in their self-preservation mode of like, I can't face this trauma. So I'm just going to invest in what do I need to keep the balls in the air and not have to face this stuff. But with psychedelics, we, that we have a, we have a kind of catalyst for doing that work. You know, we could imagine if, if in one generation it was normalized for everyone to go to a psychedelic therapist, if they wanted to, um, and even people who were unsure about it, once their friends got benefit from it, they'd be like, oh, you should really try it. And it would become a social norm um, that people do this in a work. I can imagine like that would be, that's the, the dial we have to turn is doing that in a work to get us to just be a bit, just be a lot more grounded, a lot more sane in how we think about kind of stewarding the planet. Um, and I, I, for me, I don't think I would have been able to, process the the amount of stuff I had to process without psychedelics um I see this as well and you know maybe English men in particular are a particularly tough case to crack but I see this in a lot of people where it's like a lifetime of lifetime of trauma that's just kind of getting added onto the bill um and it's just this stoic kind of like I can take this I can take this I can take this and if there's any cracks showing oh again it's just physical it's nothing it's nothing um until that person has a you know, severe depression or anxiety or psychotic break or whatever. Um, and so I think psychedelics for a lot of us are going to be kind of necessary to do this work. And also you don't really have to, in my opinion, you don't have to kind of make a case for why we should be using them, given that they're, if we use responsibly, they're physiologically benign and psychologically health-giving. Um, yeah, it seems like a no-brainer to me. Yeah, yeah. Great insights again. Thank you. And um, I'm going to come back to the um, idea of um, 
we hear it all the time. I observe a lot of psychedelic communities and there's a lot of these are going on in there right now that um, psychedelics will save the world. And my understanding is no, it won't. They won't save the world because um, because exact reason of what we talked just previously about, um, um, for example, you know, in those, uh, I mean, for example, with the, the um, personalized disorders, a narcissist will go to a ceremony, a narcissist will take a, a psychedelic, narcissist will go to a retreat, uh, a borderline person can do that. Um, a lot of these um, pathological, traumatic people can, can, interestingly, in the West, psychedelics are attracting those people. And, and because the, a, a normal baseline functioning, mild trauma, mild, you know, situation and, and physiological and mental um, uh, functioning of those people, they don't really seek psychedelics. They, they happily, you know, embracing this uh, physical being in this life and buying their home and going their holidays and raising children and so on and so forth, right? Somehow the psychedelics are attracting very deeply traumatized, um, psychologically disturbed people. So how, how are they going to save the world when a narcissistic tendency, you know, a person with a narcissistic tendency goes to a ceremony, drinks ayahuasca or any other psychedelic, um, it's only going to amplify their symptoms uh, with borderline as well. Um, so my understanding is there is a switch that happens between receiving the health, uh, healthy benefits as opposed to um, using psychedelics for building more ego and amplifying more uh, neurotic needs. What are your thoughts right. on that? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I should emphasize that the work itself is the emotional work you do. It's the psychotherapeutic work and the integration and all, all of that day in, day out stuff. Um, and the psychedelics are a catalyst. They're a tool that... Um, I think it will be a great ally going forward in the future. Um, but you're right that we see we see this, unfortunately, that uh, um, when it comes to psychedelics and, and something like kind of grandiose narcissistic traits, they seem to go together very well. You see this with spirituality as well. There are examples of kind of abusive gurus who clearly have personality disorders. And it's all another form of, of spiritual bypassing, as far as I can see, you know, um, in the sense that if someone takes a substance like 5-MeO-DMT that in seconds catapults them to this enlightenment state, um, you know, you're, that's the kind of the, um, yeah, that, I'd say that's the perfect example of psychedelic bypassing where you say, you come back and you go, okay, I get it. Everything just is, I can talk about this now. Um, this insight, people will look up to me, I'll get all this kind of cred. I can also, you know, these people can also just imitate what other people say without really getting it themselves as something, you know, because it's a subjective phenomenon. So it's, it's always a danger with gurus. Um, yeah. And then unless you know how to spot the red flags when it comes to these people, a lot of people are taken in by them. Um, and so I think, I actually think the best thing we could do for society going forward would actually be to have a culture that is aware of um is emotionally healthy and has a deep understanding of what it is for someone to be emotionally toxic because i see the we live in a culture that's effectively built for and run by 
the most emotionally toxic people um, in society. And I think it's been that way since agriculture. As soon as we had excess wealth that people could hoard, it was the narcissists, the sociopaths who were like, screw everyone else. I'm taking all this. I'm going to get police. I'm going to get an army. and I'm going to just invade other people. You know, This is the dynamic of our culture. And they're the people who get to set the message. It's not the sensitive souls who are saying, hey, maybe we should all you know, all share everything out and live um, in peace. Like Those are the, not the people who have been organizing society. Um, but you know, when you look at kind of hunter-gatherer societies, they have this kind of fierce egalitarianism, it's called in the anthropological literature, where they are constantly checking each other, constantly making sure, you know, as they're relating to each other, that people don't get too big for their boots, because they know if you let someone's ego get too big, it, it could end in violence and death, you know, because there's, you know, there's no um, formal legal system, you know, someone could just grab a rock or a, a tool and, you know, take someone's take someone's life. So there's this constant like process of of keeping an eye on people, and as soon as there are these red flags, they're they're reined in through, you know, at first. Uh, in some cultures, it's just kind of joking and like making fun of people, and then it could be a kind of stern talking to if it gets too too much, and then you know, unfortunately, sometimes the this ends with basically people just having uh, a hunting accident when they're out hunting, you know, and basically being <laughs> taken out of the picture. Uh, because that's how seriously these cultures take keeping on top of um, these antisocial traits. Now, obviously, I would not advocate for the last one, but I think having a culture that that really sees sees emotional health as what it's all about. You know, we want a culture that where we can just be happy in the present. We want well-being, whether we know it or not. People who are trying to become billionaires, they're doing it because they want to feel better in themselves. They want to have a good experience, and so everything's about our experience ultimately. Um, and so that's ultimately what it comes down to. And I think psychedelics are, we've always, you know, most human cultures have used them. And I think shamanism with plant-based shamanism is like one of the most complex, sophisticated kind of multidisciplinary things that can happen where you're doing this, like you do these group rituals where you're like um, weaving together kind of sociology and psychology and emotional healing and all this stuff to balance out the community. And I think if we, I think we did that for most of our human history because it was necessary. And without those, the shamans who are, do, who are these kind of technicians of the community, without them, that's how these individuals can run rampant and we get this kind of these hierarchies and where you can't challenge the power. Uh, and so the fact that psychedelics are banned is precisely because they're the antithesis. They do generally work in favor of. Um, of I think having this dissolving effect on hierarchy, but you're absolutely right that in cases people can use them, uh, they can have the, the kind of opposite effect. But I think on mass, as long as the majority of people are moving in the direction of emotional health, then at least we'd be able, more and more of us would be able to have these conversations where we'd recognize these people, hold them accountable. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm not worried that it will have. It's definitely something we should keep our eyes on, but I don't think it will have it will derail the project. Mm. Yeah, I love the idea of uh, building communities who are very... See, my understanding of building communities, because this is a, the project that I'm actually working currently on, and um, my ideal community would be that we keep an eye on each other so that um, instead of getting too sensitive and uh, feeling the rejection or the judgment, rather grow more um, stronger in emotions, emotional well-being, so that we can handle when somebody says, hey, 
I'm seeing this from you. I'm, I'm getting these vibes. So I'm going to call you out. Not in a brutal way, but, you know, just gentle way. Like, look, and I love the analogy of um, tribal communities in the past keeping an eye on each other. I think now is a good time to create those communities where we can be very honest with each other and say, hey, look, I'm seeing this and you may not be see this because we have blind, blind spots, right? We have this uh, deception that protects us from anything that can make us feel inadequate, um, weak, um, things like that. So I think um, this is a great way to go forward in building communities where we can keep an eye on each other and say, hey, you know, you're on the self-development work, but this is what you're not doing. This is what I'm seeing. What do you think? These are open conversations that can help us grow in those, you know, emotional um, processes, I think. And uh, currently we've done um, two classes uh, with microdosing where like a global uh, communities come together and they kind of share in a safe container where their experiences, things that come up, their emotions, traumas, struggles, challenges. I think this is, a, for me, I feel like this is a way to go forward. And recently I also read a article study that um, people showed more improvement, more healthy connection improvement through the group processes in psychedelic spaces. So this was a big deal. And it's almost like a confirmation and validation for what I've been really passionate about. And on the bicycle day, 19th of April, I listened to Rick Doblin and he said they are about to launch a group um, psilocybin processes. So um, I think, yeah, collectively kind of, we are going to that direction. I think we are seeing the benefit of uh, community processes in emotional trauma and releasing emotional trauma. So this is great. And one quick thing I wanted to mention is um, coming from the holistic background, um, there is this concept that we work when a person is heavily traumatized is the concept that we talk about um, capacity. And what I know is that I can relate to how psychedelics can do this for us. I can relate um, that, uh, you know, Without this capacity, there is, we can't go anywhere, basically. We're kind of stuck in that trapped, helpless, defenseless, uh, perceived, you know, this, this uh, rigid trauma that we carry. And in my understanding, microdosing, which is the new friend frontier of uh, using psychedelics, have been incredibly profound in building capacity in people where they can eventually start talking and releasing and they can eventually drop into their bodies. This was like the most profound thing I have observed. And um, again, coming back to the holistic um, trauma work, we don't tell people to meditate one hour when they start this, this work. We don't tell people to do yoga, hours of yoga. We don't, you know, we don't recommend even big doses of psychedelics. And I feel like microdosing psychedelics can be the new frontier in helping people build the capacity so that they can start their emotional journey. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, for me, my first experimentation with psychedelics was with microdosing. Um, well, actually, I think in the end, I, that was my intention, but I think I may have done a full dose before I started microdosing. But I think it's uh, psychologically, it's a great way in for people. Um, 
because especially, you know, something like mushrooms, if you're going to take a small dose of mushrooms and only feel it for a few hours and it may you may not even feel it, there's not really any, um, you know, unless you have psychosis or some, you know, schizophrenia uh, or you're predisposed to it, there's not really a reason that that should be a problem for you because uh, it, it allows you to kind of feel out whether this might be something that you can work with or if it's not for you. Um, so yeah, it's something I mean, I mean to talk about more and more. Um, yeah, James Fadham and someone who'd be great to talk to you about that. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's something, I mean, I've used a lot. Um, and again, I've not really spoken about it very much, but for me, it's kind of, I felt it's been necessary to continue to do a lot of kind of somatic based trauma releasing stuff. Like when it comes to integrating this stuff, sometimes, you know, if, if you're trying to release tension, it can be very hard to do just in, in a normal state of consciousness, but a small microdose can often be enough to just really allow you to start to, to, to do that process. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's very exciting. And, you know, it's obviously interest as well for kind of productivity and creativity I think we need to be careful. Again, this is part of the, you know, the forefront of of just the current system using it for its own benefit, having microdosing being like a cup of coffee and use yeah. it to make more money for Google or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think it's definitely an exciting area. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'll be excited if you can get James Fadiman on, on your show. Also for our listeners, you have an amazing YouTube channel, which I can't wait to drop the link for our listeners. Um, so much resource, so much, uh, so many um, frontiers of the psychedelic renaissance that talk to you, which is a great thing that you're doing. Thank you for bringing those to our, you know, these conversations are so important. And before we move on to a next thing that I wanted to ask you, just want to say one last thing. Um, this capacity building is huge, especially now because of the continued um, external stimuli that is somehow programmed to condition us in a way to stay where we are and stuck. And I think um, it's almost like um, there is no outlet for us to build capacity to dive into our own trauma or our own emotional uh, health. And I always remember the story of the um, caterpillar and the caterpillar transitioning into a butterfly. There is a moment when um, just before the, the shell is, to, to, to break the shell out, the, the, at the last stage, the butterfly needs to um, strengthen the wings for how many hours? Um, there's an article on this that it needs to go through this deep somatic, like really tense, intense process basically, uh, to break out the shell so that it can fly. And if this was interrupted prematurely, the butterfly dies. So I see the um, I see the the capacity as this is this is how I can explain it closest to building capacity, meaning that um, if somebody was to um, before they are ready to go to a big dose of psychedelic experience, um, as you probably see and, and aware of it, that we read so many articles we. We are aware of so many YouTube videos are being posted about bad trips and that ended up um, giving them psychosis or um, some kind of a really, it's very detrimental to their being, their psychological being. And even Michael Pollan, is, he mentioned that um, 
people who weren't ready for a big micro, uh, psilocybin experience um, after about six months, they ended up seeking therapy. So I think this, for me, my understanding is that that's because we have to go through the capacity building, which again, microdosing is like the, my biggest hope right now that we can ease people into building that capacity like the butterfly strengthening its wings so that they can finally start doing their emotional work. I think, yeah, yeah. this is, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in the classic Johns Hopkins studies that my opponent tends to write about, they, they remember them reporting that there were no adverse effects. And so I think that's a good example of what you're saying, that if you're taking responsibility and you're, you're building people up to this, you know, with that, they do a lower dose before the high dose. I think you really can help people have the capacity to manage these experiences. And I think this is where mindfulness is so necessary because for me, I would say navigating the psychedelic experience, I mentioned earlier, just becoming mindful of when your mind is, is kind of running away and talking in this kind of um, amped up way uh, to, to just notice that and then be able to be mindful of whatever's arising and just to kind of collapse back into the present. Um, I think that's, you know, I think the awareness is what we're talking about bringing things to awareness, interrupting unconscious flows of, of reactivity, and instead building capacity, building sense of spaciousness where you can notice what's going on more. So if you think of uh, a kind of pathological personality type, <clears throat> someone someone gives them a bit of advice, they say, hey, like, I think you might, you're doing this a bit, I, you know, you might want to reconsider that. They, they might just, in a split second, they may just go like, nope, they're wrong, they're mistaken, they've got another agenda, whatever the whatever the story is. But before they've had time to hear what they've had to say, feel how it makes them feel, and then consider whether it might be true, there's this, the emotion comes online, the feeling in the body, <clears throat> and then the mental response is there before there's even really time to think about it. So this is kind of what it is to be, um, yeah, to be kind of to have hard boundaries that are that can be pathological in intimate scenarios uh, where we need to be able to kind of um, interact with people, you know? So if, if, a, if a caregiver, a parent has this kind of narcissistic hard boundary, that can be really traumatizing for a kid because they can't come into kind of, they can't learn how to ground the nervous system with a, by tuning into the grounded nervous system of a parent. So, um, so yeah, I think mindfulness for me is the key thing when it comes to building capacity in all of these areas. And it also is the, it's the trajectory that points you back towards what we started speaking about, towards the kind of recognition of just being in the present. Um, it really is as simple as just letting go of you know, your craving of things, your attachment to things, and being more and more mindful of what's happening in the present. Um, and I think that is key in building capacity. Mm, I love that. And I can 100% talk about my own experience Without that capacity, I don't think I would have been able to overcome my, my borderline tendencies. And I don't think I would have been uh, observant enough to realize and, and catch those things that happen in the moment. Even, you know, um, I also had a severe OCD um, that um, it was actually it was a clinical OCD where it was really affecting my day to day, everything. And um, yeah, that without that capacity, it's like it's not just simple as, oh, just don't do it. Like leave the dishes over there. Don't worry about the dishes. Let it sit all day. You can do it. Don't just do it. It doesn't work like that. And I feel like the emotional work without the capacity, 
when we intellectualize it, yes, you can do it 10, 10, like write down 10 affirmations a day and keep saying them. You'll be fine. You'll get over it. You'll, you'll finally break through it. But my experience without that somatic capacity, and you talked about the intense nervous system, uh, intent, you know, how we go through these um, somatic experiences during psychedelic um, processes. Um, my breakthrough came through came when I was going through this incredible uh, trembling, you know, release of something's going on in my body. Didn't like it, but I also didn't want to be with it. And I was seeking my shaman to come and stop this right now. Like, can you do something? Give me a drink. You know, the Western thinking, like, can I just take a tablet, stop this? And um, when she said to me, no, you cannot stop this process. All you have to do is surrender, which was very alien, uh, the concept of surrender. And you talked a very similar things about the body, the nervous system, the intensity of the somatic release. I see this as when we go through those uh, experiences, it becomes a muscle memory and um, this is how I relate it. For example, when I'm practicing yoga and there is, say, a pose that really challenges me and I'm starting to tremble, the, the, the hot flashes come and then there's this whole thing is going on in my somatic body, but I don't understand intellectually. But all I can do is be with it. You know why? Because if I can hold the pose a bit longer and I can be with the, whatever the body is doing in that moment, let it complete its process, I know it's going to ingrain in me and I know it's going to be a muscle memory. And in the future, when I'm faced with a challenge, that muscle memory comes back and I feel more grounded. I can breathe more. I can have more space. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think so those moments where you where you need to surrender, I think to me, that's one of the most beautiful kind of things about doing this this work is there's this thing that can happen where um like I was describing with the weed and when you suddenly realize that it's actually not objectively um bad you know you have this kind of perspective shift you can be say you're in an ayahuasca retreat and you're about to be sick and you're thinking oh god I really don't want to be sick I was I was hoping I wouldn't be sick you in that moment you're feeling like everything's going wrong and that like um you're having resistance to it and there can be this sudden moment where you go, oh, wait a minute, me feeling fear about, about being sick, like that's part of my stuff for me to work through. Like my, that, this is my fear. Like I'm right in it. I'm right in the psychological material that I wanted to process. And so in those moments, that's obviously usually when you are sick and then you realize you've overcome some kind of fear. And, but like, to me, that's amazing that like, if you, if you approach psychedelic experiences and you put in all the effort to getting everything safe and prepared beforehand, including set setting and dose importantly, then you really can surrender fully to no matter what comes up. Um, and you really want to be in that space. You know, you don't want to be in a space where you have to go, okay, I can surrender to a certain point, but what if I've taken too much or what if I'm not safe and I need to switch into kind of, okay, I'm going to have to abort this mission. Um, you really don't want to do that. You want to be able to surrender fully. Um, and again, this is why mindfulness is important because just, just being mindful, you can, you can, very quickly notice how how tricky your mind is just doing basic meditation apps that will just tell you to pay attention to your breath you can notice how you know suddenly your your mind is going like you're paying attention to your breath you're constantly thinking and eventually you think you're not thinking for a second 
And then your mind is like, hey, I'm not thinking. This is great. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm just paying attention to the breath. And then you suddenly wait, like, wait a minute. That's thinking again. And but you were fooling yourself. And so you get to know just how many ways the mind will will kind of come up with ways to, to not just go, go quiet. Not that that's entirely what we're aiming for, but, but that it's constantly jumping all over the place, this kind of monkey mind, you know. And something with psychedelics, you know, even having a music playlist that I pretty much refuse to tinker with while I'm tripping is a big part of it as well, where it can be something like, um, actually one of the last trips I had, there's a song um, that I absolutely love and I've listened to it probably dozens and dozens of times while tripping. It's my favorite song to trip to. And I was I was tripping and I, I was like, you know what, that bass note is off. Like it's, it's flat. Like it doesn't fit. It's, uh, and I was like, Oh my God, how did I never notice? This is so irritating. Like it's, it's just constantly there, like, and it's out of tune. And then this went on for ages. And then I suddenly realized, I was like, well, how likely is that? How likely is it that I've never noticed this before? And I realized I was on the precipice of like thinking about something emotional and my mind just was like, it just invented something, basically. It took a piece of music that I love, I've never had a problem with, and decided that that, that was the thing that was going to irritate me so that I could, you know, and then for, if, if I hadn't already known that this kind of thing can happen and that what I need to do in that moment is surrender and find what the feeling is in the body, what I what most people would have done is they would have taken off the blindfold, they would have taken off the headphones, changed the track, you know, okay, maybe I'll go for a walk on that, maybe I'll have a glass of orange juice. Suddenly you're 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 moving away, away, away from the actual material you wanted to process. I mean, this is, you know, you're going in there the way that I do this, at least, to try to find the emotional issues, to try and explore the shadow. Um, and even when you go in with those intentions, you, your mind can still still come up with tricks like that. So um, it's amazing when you when you bring them to awareness. And it's beautiful because you realize if you approach it with the right, the right kind of, you get everything safe and you surrender, that's it. The healing will happen. Everything will unfold in this beautifully healing way. And so, yeah, I call it beautiful because it's like, you okay. feel like there are so many ways in which things aren't going right. And it's always going right. It's always going in the right direction. I love this. Oh my God, this comes with trust. <laughs> this is my favorite concept, trusting. And and when um, when people say, oh, how many times do you have to go back to Ayahuasca to, you know, all these talks that people give you if it was that effective you should have healed in one go <laughs> but, but then if you're if you haven't built the capacity because the reason you go you the reason i mean i'm referencing ayahuasca but this could be san pedro masculine you know masculine this could be psilocybin even lsd could be a, a incredible and i know stories that people have taken lsd to make more money to become more smarter to hack their you know mind but then suddenly faced with this enormous trauma release that they didn't know what to do with it so again this comes back to us um, keep building the capacity and I would always say how many times is it right to do the ceremonies or how many times shall I go for it shall I do three six no you go as many times as you need to until you build the capacity where you get to a point, you are fully aware of your mind tricks. You're fully aware of, like you said earlier, with finding that little tone in the music or the, the thing to distract yourself until you are fully 
allowing your body to do what it needs to do. And one of my recent um, experiences was Cambo. As you know, the Cambo is the, the vaccine of the Amazon and it's not psychoactive. It is very, oh my God, it's one of the best um, medicine for trauma, trauma release, because somehow you talk about this in your uh, talks as well, that somehow we intellectualized everything in a way that healing should look like this. Healing should be intellectualized. I read a comment in one of the um, psychedelic communities, Facebook groups that one lady was saying, how can I go through an ayahuasca ceremony without purging? Is there something I can take not to purge? I found this so funny. It, this is how we are. So we, yeah. we, we want to stop this somatic. And you talked one of your conversations. You said healing doesn't look nothing like we expect. It, it, it is very different to what we think healing looks like. The somatic release of the trauma is nothing we can even imagine. It's beyond our grasp. And with Campbell, knowing this really helps me because when the effects come in like seconds and it's so demanding, it demands literally surrender. And the more you resist it, the more you want to walk around, the more you want to move around or start paying attention to other things, the more it comes at you harder. So, um, you know, yeah. like you said, we can definitely fixate our mind on something. This is not right. This is so bad. I will never come to do this again. But then there is this other side where we allow the body to do its process, right? Right. I mean, and we are a process. So like, you know, we are a constant, messy, constantly changing thing that, and we don't like that because the fact that we're constantly changing means that we're mortal. This is a process that won't go on forever. So we tend to identify with an image of ourselves. You know, I might say, I am James, and I have this symbol in my head, this image of, of what James is. Um, and then, you know, what we were talking earlier about the kind of trauma of, of if you have a kind of narcissistic parent and what's happening there, you know, is that there's this hard emotional boundary because they don't want to feel their own emotions and they're identifying with this image. You know, this is why narcissists are kind of obsessed with, their, with how they physically look. Because, but it's also it's a reflection of the fact that they identify with a static symbol of themselves, and that's an attempt to escape all of our fears of change, but ultimately fear of death. That we'd rather be an image that's just I am James, and James is unchanging, and he, you know he won't get old, he won't die. Um, and so when you, when you say people say like, well, you've been to ayahuasca, if it worked, aren't you better now? Like that's someone who's still in the mindset of I am the image. My image can go from this one to this one but they're not seeing that what's really happening is this real embodied organism that's very complex is on a journey to constantly improve, constantly find new subtleties to how it can improve itself and kind of interact more healthfully with the world. Um, and I think that's a, a fundamental shift and it's quite telling when someone um, thinks that it's something that you could just do once and then you should be done. Yeah, absolutely. That's so powerful. Thank you so much. So I have a couple of things that I wanted to ask um, if that's okay. So what are your thoughts on future of psychedelics? Where are we going? What, to, what, what can we expect in the next few years? What are your observations? Right. So in the coming few years, you know, 2024, 2025, MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin for depression are kind of on track for um, 
being prescribable by doctors, both in the EU, the UK and America. Um, and I think we'll see a, a small group of, of people, you know, people who are currently on antidepressants, for example, maybe even smaller than that. They, you know, suicide may be only for treatment resistant depression, where you have to have been on antidepressants for a long time. And you have to try and talk therapy and then eventually you can get psilocybin, which to me is absurd given the lack of harms associated with it when it's done professionally. Uh, but that's probably what we'll see. We'll probably see quite a conservative rollout. Um, then I think there will be a critical mass of enough seeds planted that people's friends of friends will have had positive experiences and then it will seep into the mainstream. People will be going on, this is just speculation, but I think we'll start to see more retreats, people kind of pushing for decriminalization in different states in America, hopefully in Europe, although we have less momentum behind us here. Um, and then what I would like to see is, is a mainstream movement for decriminalization retreats, um, yeah, and kind of homegrown personal use take over from a medical model where you have to, you know, where there's a, th a threat of being put in a cage in prison if you, you know, grow your own mushrooms. I don't think that's healthy um, in the culture. So that that's my hope. And I, I'm most excited for that tipping point. Um, we're, we're seeing even now before they're prescribable that there's a huge kind of uptick in interest in psychedelics. So there'll be some point, I, I think, where we start to, you know, I guess it would be something like a second 60s, but we're, we're such a different culture now. There's so much more information available to people. There's so much, so much groundwork has been done that I hope it can be a kind of a 60s where, you know, by which I mean just kind of psychedelics coming into the mainstream where we don't have the same level of hysterical backlash by the repressive forces that want to keep the stuff down. But I anticipate we will see that. I think the press will absolutely love it as soon as, the first person um, injures themselves or injures someone on psychedelic in a trial or in a retreat. The press loves fear. It loves to scare people. We have a, we have a culture that, that is terrified of altered states. It's a fear-based culture in general. So expect a lot of pushback because people won't get it. People won't get that like you have to embrace fear and that's part of your shadow. Before you've done this work, people will just go, nope, I don't like doing things I'm afraid of. <laughs> that can stay in the shadow maybe psychedelics or something I should be afraid of. I don't want to do the work. So um, I don't think, I don't think society would tolerate them being fully prohibited again, because it's been so, it's, it's, it's so obvious now the science is in favor of, of them being safe. Um, so that'd be interesting to see when it comes to that kind of backlash, but I hope for mainstream acceptance and, I hope for it to have a, an impact on our political systems and our social organization um, as a result of that as well. Mm, amazing. Uh, I'm with you that I think the moment somebody messes up something, um, I'm sure the, the press would be all over it. And um, I heard a talk from Hamilton Morris and he said, um, they asked him about should psychedelics, should, should, should they be all legal? And he said, um, I'd like to say yes, but then he said, I'm also not going to be naive enough to, to, know, to, to think that people are going to be responsible. So I think we can tie this back to the capacity. And like you said earlier, uh, the understanding of the shadow material, understanding of the trauma release, understanding of capacity building, facing the fear, surrendering, all these woo-woo concepts that... Um, psychedelics, um, psychedelic space, you know, we learn all these, how the actual process of uh, healing or transcending 
looks like. So you're right. And if somebody lived in that image, you also said this image, entire lives, um, they're not going to want to have uh, psychedelics to be legalized, right? Or at least they will be irresponsible. It's inevitable that human beings will be irresponsible with psychedelics again and again and again. This is something that um, we're going to overcome, hopefully at least manage with uh, education, information, people like yourself. And also I'm hopeful because I see um, a lot of organization, founders of uh, amazing organization from organizations from the US, the Europe, all over the globe that um, people have been in the psychedelic space for decades. And they've, they've done the work, they've been there in the field and they're so grounded and they came back creating these uh, amazing informative channels, uh, eBooks and everything. So this is a much better, we're in a better position than the 60s, I think. Yeah, I mean, also, you know, when it comes to people, people will do irresponsible things, but I think it's fair to say people do irresponsible things on alcohol, right? Think of, mm-hmm. I mean, the insane levels of harm caused by alcohol. It, we, mm-hmm. it's a, it would be a complete double standard to think about criminalizing and imprisoning people for psychedelic use because, you know, people can be responsible, um, and there's no justification for, for, for criminalization for imprisoning people for the use of these things. And it's we'll look back on it like we look back on uh, kind of witch hunts and and just these things that seem utterly barbaric and and the fact that you have authorities that claim to be looking out for our best interests, but will put us in cages for, for selling some or consuming mushrooms. Um, so I, I, a decriminalization is a no brainer for me. Legalization gets more interesting and complex because we don't necessarily want big companies getting monopolies on, on these substances. So decriminalization with access being, you know, where, where communities can grow their own and, and distribute them and have, you know, ceremonies to me, that might be the best model, but, uh, but yeah, having them be illegal in the way that they currently are is completely unjustifiable going forward. Mm, yeah, great. Also, um, what does um, your future look like in terms of like, uh, how do you see yourself um, interacting with psychedelics? And you are currently in, um, you're, in you're, you're not in the UK right now, are you? I, I am right at this moment. I have, I've been here for about a week now, but uh, you were... I've yeah accidentally tripped you there because for the last year I've been in Portugal um, mm-hmm. building a retreat center uh, mm-hmm. and just back here for my university work at the moment um, with COVID it's been kind of hard but but yeah we're able to do to work again now um, but long term we're I, I'm I'm seeing my future more and more in our retreat center more and more in this kind of work writing and speaking about these issues and communicating I think I can do more value my work can be more value there than just sticking to kind of inside academia. Um, but yeah, so the Surrender Homestead is is the kind of handle for, for the place in Portugal. Uh, and maybe a year from now, um, 2022, that's maybe springtime around then, we might be ready to start having people. Mm, and what's the uh, what's the mission behind the retreat center to to create space for people to ex- explore psychedelics in a, in yeah, a sacred I mean, it's, area? It started as a kind of desire to just live in an authentic way where I, me and my wife want to be kind of close to nature. We want to be doing creative projects. We want to be sharing those things with like-minded people. So 
we don't have a mission statement. We're not really, a, we're not like a business or a, as used as a wide retreat center because, you know, uh, maybe that's the, the closest thing people can, can associate it with. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's really going to evolve organically. We kind of, um, we naturally, uh, it's very much like we were saying before about the mindset of having to be goal-directed in our culture and looking towards the future. We're kind of doing the opposite of that. We're being present there and we're, we're moving step-by-step step in the direction of hearing what people are interested in, what people are offering, We've got a huge number of offers for people to collaborate. Um, so I think hopefully we'll have kind of experience-based retreats, but also meditation retreats and um, art workshops. Uh, you know, it's in this beautiful place in nature, in the mountains. So uh, yeah, we're hoping to kind of integrate a lot of different things, maybe even little conferences that maybe we can live stream and uh, on psychedelics. Uh, but yeah if you follow Surrender Homestead you can see what we're up to mm, absolutely I'll be dropping the links to that as well amazing the off-grid style of living where you kind of kind of embrace and one of your concepts of being the embodied living organism in its habitat exactly where we need to be and just thriving so um, one of the things that stuck out uh, for me was thriving to be an embodied limited mortal being that's a uh, profound so yeah thank you for advocating all of these um uh, you know future this is i see your you know stance in the psychedelic uh realm as one of the most strongest and credible and also grounded because this is what we need we need more of those people coming together so that we can um, help us realize and come back and heal and and stop living in this delusional idea of let's just move let's just go to the next planet you said it earlier let's um you know escape um our reality we don't want to escape we want to come back we want to embrace learn and explore right this is the idea and be, yeah. mm. so as just closing words closing um, wisdom what would you like to say to our listeners um, any advice any tips anything that comes to mind yeah I mean I think um, in this conversation I've kind of emphasized uh, the importance of just having a basic under a basic mindfulness um, and knowing that there's this direction where the more grounded in the present you are the more the more um, you're mindful of when you're getting lost in thought and you're doing anything other than being here to me, that's the most important thing about all of our time here. And that if you if you learn to navigate that axis, that will that will serve you in your daily life and psychedelic experiences. And that's what it's what it's all about as far as I'm concerned. Amazing. And I love that you, you know, you talked a lot about the mindfulness and awareness. And I mean, we covered so many things around capacity awareness, um, modern psychedelics itself. So this uh, this shows me that psychedelics are tools and we can use them integrating them along with other you know mindfulness practices that can further facilitate our you know becoming more conscious people for ourselves for the planet for the environment for you know to do good to be well and live in harmony hopefully yeah yeah hopefully yeah. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for all the wisdom that you have shared today. Um, grateful and honored. All the best. I'm sure we will have you again for another episode. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Uh, thank you. Yeah.
yeah, we'll be following your journey. We'll be following the retreat, um, unfolding of the retreat, um, facilitating, you know, all of the psychedelic in this psychedelic renaissance that we're in now. So uh, again, thank you so much. All the best. Thanks, you too. Thank you everyone for listening and tuning in. Any questions, please do drop them in the comments and reach out to Dr. James and myself if there's any questions. If you want to talk more, feel free to reach out and I'll see you guys on the next one. Thank you so much for tuning in. Much love. Bye for now. Thank you so much for joining us. Psychedelic Conversations podcast is designed to educate, inform and expand awareness. For more information, please head over to psychedelicconversations.com. You can also share with your friends or leave a review so that we can reach more people. You can also join us in our private Facebook group to keep the conversation going. This show is for information purposes only and it is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.